0: jump right into it, and as you do, notice it starts off saying a song of ascent. Ascent is that idea of going up. This song was, was read, and this song is sung. As people trek the 3,500-mile hike up to Jerusalem, they would sing this song, and they would sing others like it. And ascent is a very important word, too, because as you read that, notice it, it doesn't start on the top of the mountain where everything is great and the sun is shining down on you and everything is okay. Notice where it starts. The song starts in the depths, in the valley of the shadow of death, where there's no sun and there's just darkness and there's depression and there's this sense of doom and dread and brokenness. Verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Do you hear the emotion in that? Like, God, I, hear me. Are you going to hear me? Please, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I'm begging you right now, he says. Do you feel the waves of panic in those words? They're pounding him. There's, th- that word depth is used of where, uh, where Jonah was underneath the ocean in the belly of a big fish. He's in the depths, and this guy is under. A weight of pain. There's no end in sight. He doesn't, and notice he doesn't phone a friend and he doesn't have a drink and he doesn't even pray. Notice the word that it uses there. He cries. He begs, Are you going to hear me? Are you going to listen to what I'm saying? He's so worried that he's so far away from God that God's not even going to hear him. He begs, God, Listen to me, please. Hear me. It feels like you're far away and I need you. The end of verse 2 tells you why he, he feels God is so far away from him. He feels so badly because he needs what? Notice what he needs. He needs mercy, which gives us insight into the anguish. What we learn here is that he's troubled by his sin. He's troubled by the sense of, I am far away from God. I'm separated from him, and I don't like this. I don't like living in this state. I want this to be done. The question is, has God done that for you? Has God brought you to a place like this man, where he's broken, where he's thinking, God, where are you? I need you. My sin has separated me from you, and I, I just want to be close to you again. The Bible has a word to describe this. The word, uh, and we're going to look at this, what, what, this passage is going to take us up four steps. And it's four steps that either start a relationship with God or grow a relationship with God. And step number one is the word contrition. So if you write it in your Bible next to verses one and two or on your, on your program, there's a, there's a spot here, right there, sermon notes. Write the word contrition. This, this word contrition comes from a Latin word that means to grind down. It's what dentists do to teeth. Nobody likes that, right? To remove all that decay, they have to grind the tooth down, and what's happening here is that God is grinding him down. He's grinding down his pride, and he's grinding down his self-righteousness, this idea that I'm not all that bad. I'm a pretty good person, you know. I mean, I'm not Hitler, like that's some great standard, you know. I'm not Hitler, so I'm pretty good, right? Grinding down his self-righteousness and his excuses and his justification, he does this until our hearts are raw, until it stings and it hurts and we scream and we're overwhelmed and we're broken. And we at the thought of our sin and we're like, God, are you there? Has God brought you to that? Has God stripped you of all your good works? Has he grinded down all your hope and your goodness, all your hope and your good intentions, all your hope and never doing anything that's really all that bad? You know, I'm not as bad as that person over there, so I'm pretty good. He stripped you of all of that and just left you naked before Him in your sin, going, God, I'm really in trouble before you. In that moment, we realize it's our sin in, this, in the face of this holy God, and it just leaves us utterly broken. That's where this psalm starts. It starts in the depths, in the bottom and this is what God does with a person that he's saving. This is what God does with one of his children who is struggling with sin. He lets that struggle take them down and be, so, that they're, so that they say, God, please, I, I'm done with me. I'm done with myself. I just want you. That's where he goes in verse 3. He goes to God, but before he goes to God, his sin breaks him. Before taking us to the heights of forgiveness, God starts us in this deep pit of brokenness over or sin has he done that for you? Does he do that for you? When you recognize the sin in your life, does he break you, or do you just look at it and go, "Oh yeah, you know, we all sin, and so I'm cool. Whatever, you know, we all sin, and you know that's right." Here we notice that there is somebody who is broken. They're contrite. Have you stopped looking at how bad other people are and started looking at you know it's actually me? I'm I'm sinful. Stop asking, you know, why doesn't God save everybody? And go, why in the world, with all of my sin, would you save me? You started to wonder why God would even hear your prayers, ever give you anything good because of all your sin. You've been overwhelmed by your need for mercy like this man. That's contrition. And if you have stood on step number one, then you're ready to go to step number two. Look at verse three. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... Oh, Lord, who could stand? Think about that. I mean, one, at first he's broken over his sin, and now he recognizes, like, this isn't getting any better, God, because now I'm standing before you in my sin. Notice that those words, in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, all the times it says, oh, this is desperation. This is, I'm in trouble. This is, God, I need you. He remembers that God actually does mark iniquities. He does remember them. And he remembers that no one is going to stand before God. No one's going to win that case. No one's going to come out innocent. We're all going to be found guilty. It doesn't matter how holy we are, how much Bible memory we have, how, you know, how pure we are, how do-good are we. Like It doesn't matter. We're not going to survive. We're doomed. God is not lenient. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say that right answers or good, good works are with two points and sins are with one point. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say boys will be boys. He doesn't accept things like, you know, oh, I'm in college or, you know, it's not going to happen again or just this once or I'll do better next time or I'm just a teenager. Like, he doesn't do that. He recognizes, notice those words, Lord, Lord, Lord. He recognizes that he's speaking with, about God. And he recognizes you're the king, you're in charge, you're the self-existent, high-exalted, always-existing, holy one, and I am in trouble. The writer is in the depths because he sees his sin, verse 2, and he sees his king, verse 3. And he brings his future judgment day into his present reality and goes, I am undone. But verse 4 is in the Bible and it starts with this blessed Wonderful word, but. One author said, What a blessed but this is. One of the most blessed buts in the Word of God. In the first service, only kids laughed at that, so it made me feel juvenile when I lid, but that's okay. But notice that word. He doesn't end in his despair, he ends on a God who forgives. This word shows that he's turned away from himself, and now he's in this process of turning to God, and he's seeing God for who he is, and he remembers that you wipe the record clean. Guilt is removed. You remember my sins no more. I can trust you for grace. I can trust you for forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness, and he breathes a sigh of relief, and he says, yes, even though I was on the depths, you're bringing me out of it by reminding me that you forgive Step number two in this process, the writer after contrition ascends to forgiveness. Very often, many will wallow in verses one to three. They'll stay in brokenness and despair. They'll they'll be taken under over and over again by doubt and sin and failure. They never move to verse four. Verses one to three are like your senior year of high school. It's a good place to go, but it's not a good place to stay. You know, Staying a senior for even one extra day, it's a bad thing. Step number one is a good place to go. Contrition is a good place to go, but it's not a good place to stay. It's meant to move you from contrition to trust in forgiveness, to remind you that God is a God who forgives, that God graciously brings us to the depths so that we'll be done with ourselves and go, I need you, I trust you. Once we're finished with ourselves, once we're humbled, once we're in our rightful place and God is in his rightful place, we're ready to trust him. He believes that in God is forgiveness. And he's lifted out of darkness. He's lifted out of despair. His feet are on a rock. And he knows that God is not stingy with his forgiveness. He's not sitting there going, Are you doing all the right things? Are you the right person? Okay, I'll forgive. He is lavish with his forgiveness. He loves to forgive. In fact, it says in the Bible that a contrite heart he will not turn away. He loves being forgiving. Whether it's the first time or whether it's the five thousandth time, God forgives. And God loves to forgive. And look at verse 4 again. It says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be loved. Is that what it says? Does your Bible say that? With you there is forgiveness that you may be praised. Does your Bible say that? What does it say? That you may be feared. Does that strike you as kind of odd? forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What's the connection there. Even that word that in verse 4 speaks to result. With you there is forgiveness. With the result that you may be feared. Not terrified, but that you may be honored. Stood in awe of. Not taken lightly, but felt the weightiness of God. In other words, forgiveness here is not taken lightly. It's not treated lightly. It actually moves us from sinner to saint. God freely forgives, not so we take lightly forgiveness and go, yeah, well, you know, God forgives. I remember the student. I'm a teacher, and I remember I teach Bible, and I remember the student drawing a picture for me of him partying. He's at a party, and he's just dancing around, and it says over the top of it, God forgives, so dot, 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 I can do whatever I want. Not in this passage. Forgiveness is connected to fear, to honoring, to obeying God that worship, the worship that comes from forgiveness motivates obedience. This is Titus 2.11. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. Forgiveness teaches us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Has God brought you to step number two? Do you wallow in despair? Do you live on step number one and don't even go to step number two? Do you cry out to friends and self-help websites, or food, or a hobby, or your knowledge, or your character to fix you, or some experience in the past, okay, this tells me I'm okay, instead of crying out to God. Isn't it good, isn't it refreshing, like, to look at this passage and see that no matter how deeply our sins affect us, no matter how far away we feel from God, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you in your life, there is no depth so low into sin that God does not hear your prayers. There is no depth so low that God's arm cannot reach down into your depths and pull you back out of it. Have you been forgiven but live like you've never been forgiven? Always demure, always down. Do you live in, oh, wretched man that I am, and not, uh, there's no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Forgiveness is with your God. Forgiveness is there. You were never meant to be broken over and over and over and over over sin that's already been forgiven. Walk in the freedom of forgiveness. And that freedom will change your life because all, there are those who live and there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ so I can live however I want. God forgives so sin is no big deal. And this passage says, no. Hear this. You've been saved to serve God not yourself. Don't comfort yourself with, I'm forgiven, if you're always treating God lightly, disregarding Him, sinning without remorse, not fearing Him. Forgiveness produces reverence, produces awe and worship, and that worship leads to growth and change in Christ-likeness and obedience. The writer sees a connection between forgiveness and fear, and awe and worship to you. Step number three starts in verse five. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Did you see all that repetition? Three times the word wait is used. That more than the watchman thing is repeated. What's going on here? Well, despair is no more. All the despair is gone now. That's replaced by hope. And this watchman person, this person is someone who you would put them, you, you would station them on the top of a wall, like your, your city back then was everyone lived inside the walls of the city, and you would station them all over the top, and they would just look out at the horizon, and they would, they would see, and they, they would just watch all night because they would look for any sneak attacks. They would look for anyone coming in to take over and destroy and attack the city during the nighttime. So they would station these watchmen all over the wall and they would just look out, and they would see, and they would think, and they would watch, and and they they knew, like, if, if everything goes all right tonight, then I know I'm getting off when that sun goes up. When that sun goes up, I get to go home and go to bed, and when that sun goes up, that means everyone in the city is safe. That means I've done my job, and I can go home. So if you're a watchman, I'm told even, I mean, they still do this today, not with You know, not with like, not on walls of city, but just like in camps and in the military. Someone stays up all night to watch. And what they look for is when the sun comes up, they're anticipating, gosh, when the sun comes up, sun comes up, sun comes up, then I'm done doing this. And he goes, just like the watchman who knows the sun is coming up, but is anticipating it and longing for it and wanting it. He says, that's how I am with you, God. I long for you. I love you. I wait for you. I want to be close to you. There is a sense of hope and trust and commitment in this passage. And that's step number three. He goes from condition, con- contrition to forgiveness to hope. He rests in the truth that God is for him and not against him. And he finds hope in that, and he finds strength in that. His commitment to God, the trust that he has, and this truth that he knows from God's Word... Verse 5, it produces hope and confidence and assurance, rest, and he doesn't rest in himself, he rests in his God. At his core, notice verse 5, it says, my soul waits for the Lord. At his very, the very core of his being, he's God-centered, like, I'm thinking about God, I want God. He's not fixated on himself anymore, like verses 1 to 3. He is now fixated on God. There's no hope in verses 1 to 3. He has found hope, and so he embraces it, and he holds on to it, and he doesn't let go of it because he's found hope. He's not tossed back and forth by every fad, every new supposed discovery, every feeling, every new status symbol. None of that stuff is pulling on his heart because what's pulling on his heart is God. Hope is a good thing. And as you look at your life and you say, gosh, I'd I'd like more hope. The Bible tells us that there's a guy named Paul. He went from being a Christian killer to a missionary. He called Jesus our hope. He wrote that apart from Jesus, we have no hope, but that in Jesus is hope. So without any hope, you can come to Christ and you can have hope. You tell him that right now through prayer. Coming to you, I'm hoping in you. But then he goes on to say that hope comes from forgiveness of sins. He says hope also comes from obedience. Paul writes, character produces hope. And both he and Peter say hope comes from remembering that we right now are in the part of the story. We're not even to the climax and the resolution in the story, right? We're still building the plot. Just like the fiancé that receives hope strengthens her commitment as she anticipates her wedding day. Just like the employee that, that strengthens his resolve to work hard as he anticipates a vacation. Just like the athlete who trains a little more focused because the championship game is coming. So the Christian gains strength and hope and confidence and assurance when he or she remembers that when the author steps on the stage, the play is over. When the King, the Lord Jesus, returns to the pages of history, our faith becomes sight, assurance gives way. We no longer hope because we will have what we hope for. And so he says, I wait for you, I long for you. Well, if you've stood on step three, if you've, if you've seen that and you long for that, then step four is really, you can't be silent about it. Look at verse seven. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He now turns from his own personal experience, and he looks out at a mass of people, and he says, take my personal experience and gain encouragement from it. He says, to all who would listen, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord, why should I hope in the Lord? Because with him, there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice that the, the O oh again in verse 7. Now this guy is just passionate. He's, he's passionately broken over his sin. He passionately confesses his sin. He passionately waits for the Lord. He's passionately proclaiming and celebrating the greatness of his God. He started out overwhelmed by his sin, and by the end of this passage, he is overwhelmed with his God. He didn't stay in the despair, but he celebrates. He celebrates because God forgave him. He's forgiven He's clean. So he goes from contrition to forgiveness to hope to celebration. Step number four. After what we've gone through, after what, I'm sorry, after what he's gone through, he can't hold it back. He can't shut it in. He can't say, well, you know, that's good for me, but I don't know if I can tell you about it. The the reason he is so fired up is that word redeem. Look at verse 7, verse 8, that word redeem, which is used twice in these two verses to capture why he is celebrating. There is something really amazing going on here. Redemption is the main thought on his mind as he ends this song, and that word comes from the language of the marketplace, from the language of transactions, buying and selling. But it's not buying and selling goods and services. It comes from the language of the slave trade, actually. The word redemption talks about buying and selling people. When most Christians hear the word redemption, they just see it as a synonym for salvation, which it is. But even the word salvation assumes the idea of being rescued from danger, assumes that you're not in a good place. And I don't know about you, I can't can't think of anything worse than being a slave. According to Slavery International, there are over 200 million slaves alive today. 200 million, that's Two out of every three people in America. So two out of every three people in this room, a slave. Can you imagine being the property of another person? At their beck and call, your entire existence is to do whatever they want. Some are like, that sounds like childhood. Well, kind of. Only teenagers say that. But I think of our Christian brothers and sisters in Muslim countries who are forced to do horrific things simply because they're slaves. Google modern slave trade, and you will just be floored. But the Bible teaches that it's not 200 million people that are slaves, but that every human being is a slave. And our master is not a good one. It is a bad one. It is a worst one. It is the worst one. Slaves to sin. Sin owned us, it dominated us, it gave us no mercy, controlled us to do whatever it wanted, it showed us no grace, it didn't care about us, it couldn't care less about us. And James chapter 1 says that sin hates us so much that it wants to kill us. The result is verses 1 to 3 again. Waves of doubt, despair, no hope for freedom. I read about children who are slaves because their grandfathers racked up debt to someone and they couldn't pay it back. So here's this grandpa, here's this guy, works 365 days a year, 12 to 16 hours a day. He doesn't get paid enough, so he can never pay that debt back. So that debt gets transferred to his kids. And his kids then work for 365 days a year for multiple decades, 12 to 16 hours a day. And again, they can't pay it back because they don't get paid enough. So then that debt falls to their kids. And they're in perpetual slavery forever. No hope of ever working enough, no hope of ever doing enough, nothing. That dead-end, panic-causing, no-hope life is actually true of every human being. No hope of ever working enough, doing enough to ever be freed from slavery to sin. Our lot in life spiritually is hopeless. Our future certain. Live under the tyranny of sin until we die. No chance of emancipation, no hope of freedom, only tyranny and oppression from sin Forever, that was our lot. Redemption refers to the release of a slave by giving a payment. Pay the price; sin, the slave goes free. Price is paid to ransom someone from slavery. Is called a ransom. To pay a ransom to a master is to fulfill the debt, which sets the slave free. It's deliverance. It's salvation through the payment of a price. There is no mention in Psalm one thirty about how someone is forgiven. But Jesus said, Mark 10, 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Imagine you're a six-year-old boy or girl who doesn't celebrate Christmas, who doesn't have a birthday, because all you do is work 16 hours a day every single day for for your slave master. No child labor laws. There's nothing sanitary about your condition. You're chained to a desk where your sewing machine is so that, so that when your work is over after 16 hours, all you do is crawl under your desk and go to sleep and get back up and do it again the next day. I read about kids like this. Imagine the bugs, imagine the filth, imagine the hopelessness, imagine longing to be free, but there's no running, there's no skipping, there's no jumping, there's no smiling, there's no laughing with friends. All you do every day, 365 days a year, is sew socks together. Now fast forward to your age now. Whatever that is, two decades, one decade, one year, two years, five decades, seven decades of that talk about hopeless, talk about depression, talk about pain, talk about questions and what in the world is going on here. Talk about depths. And then imagine a young man walking over to you, undoing your chain, saying you're free, go. How happy would you be? Like you wouldn't even know what to do with yourself. There'd probably be crying. There'd probably be a sense of like, what am I going to do now? There'd be excitement unlike anything you've ever seen. Probably be tears. There'd just be, you'd just be amazed. And then imagine as you're leaving that sweatshop, you look back and you see the slave master is actually chaining that young man to your desk where he's going to work for the rest of his life. Would you ever have the compassion to do that for anybody? Anybody? I was thinking about it, like, my wife, my kid, I want to say that, yeah, I would do that. But would I really? Jesus did. And yours, he did that for you. And yours was a life debt. Which means no amount of working for sin would ever pay your debt off. For you to go free, he had to die, and he did. And then notice verse 8. This ransom price was not partial. Jesus' ransom payment did not leave some left over for you to work off. He took care of most of it, but there's a little bit for you left. Notice what it says there He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, from all his sins. That wouldn't be a ransom. If he left a little bit over, that wouldn't be a ransom. We'd still be slaves because the debt wouldn't have been paid. No, when Jesus redeems us, when his blood buys us, he brings us into eternal redemption, a redemption price paid for us that makes redemption total and complete and lasts forever. Our redemption is complete. That's why John 8, 36 says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free. There's nothing left for you to pay. There's nothing left for you to do. You have been emancipated forever. And notice verse 7. It gets better than that. Verse 7 says redemption is plentiful, meaning it's full, it's abundant, it's lavish, it's generous, it far exceeds our needs, it far exceeds even the possibility that we could, could drain the depths of it. It's more than we could possibly deserve. It's enough for all our sins. It's enough for each of our sins. It's enough Are there sins of your eyes? They're forgiven. Are there sins of your ears? They're forgiven. Sins of your lips? Sins of your thoughts? Sins of your imagination? Sins of your feelings? Sins in your past? Sins in your present? Sins in your future? All of them forgiven. This is not stingy redemption. This is plentiful redemption. And think about it. Jesus doesn't just forgive your sins. He frees you from slavery. He doesn't just free you from slavery. He adopts you into the family. Right? Right? And he doesn't just adopt you into the family. He makes you an heir of the estate. You get in on this. Galatians 4, 7, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. And he doesn't just make you an heir. You know, maybe you get a little small piece of the estate. He makes you a co-heir with Jesus. You're not the red-headed stepchild, and Jesus is the, you know, the, the favorite child. John 17, 23 says, God loves you just like he loves Jesus correspondence there. There's no reason He should love us like that. None at all. But He does. That is full salvation. That is abundant grace that's lavish, that's generous, that far exceeds everything, anything we could hope for, anything we could imagine, anything we could deserve. That is our God. That is our King. That is plentiful redemption. But it gets even better than that. Look Look at the passage again. When he redeems us, he goes a step farther to be redeemed. It's really to transfer ownership through the payment of a ransom price. And a modern slave, slave owner could, could buy someone out of slavery, and they could have them for decades and decades, and then finally just say, you know what, I don't want you anymore, and you're done. I don't want you anymore, and just kill them. Not our God. Notice verse 7. With the Lord, with our God, there is steadfast Love. It's not like he loves you for a while and then eventually he's just going to be, you know what, whatever with you. I'm done with you. His love is permanent. It's unfailing. It's loyal. It's it's not the devotion of a friend or a family member or a company or a spouse that may lessen, may fade, or may even go away. It's not like that. His love is unbendingly loyal. Lamentations three twenty two. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, ever. Drink that in, Christian. And if you are not a Christian, I hope that there is a thirst in you to say, I want that. I need that. I don't want to leave here without that. That is something to celebrate, is it not? That is something to, be, to rejoice over. That's something to tell people about. So which step are you on? Are you even on any of the steps? you're on the steps, means God's in the process or has already saved you. He's working on you. I pray that you're seeing yourself somewhere on one of those steps, either on contrition or forgiveness or hope or celebration. But that's, this is what God does when he forgives us. He takes us through this process. So at the end of forgiveness, we're not looking at sin, and we're not looking at him and like, yeah, hey, you're my homeboy. What's up, man? I'm gonna go do whatever I want. Our lives are now marked by celebration and hope. We see this and we go, yes, that's me. I've experienced that. I can see that in my own life. That's what God does when he forgives. So when we take communion now and we sing now and we give now, let's celebrate our Redeemer. Let's celebrate our risen, reigning, returning Savior, King Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you.